Chapter Thirteen of the Mystery of the Four Fingers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Four Fingers by Fred M. White. Chapter Thirteen: The White Lady Again. It was perhaps an imprudent thing for the two friends to remain there, exposed as they were to the danger of discovery at any moment. But so completely were they fascinated by what was going on about them that they had flung caution to the winds. One thing was in their favor, however. There was not much likelihood of their being attacked from below, seeing that all the servants had gone to bed, unless, perhaps, some latecomer entered the house. Still, the risk had to be run, and so they stood there together, waiting for the next move. It was Venner who spoke first. "'I cannot get over the extraordinary likeness of that girl to my wife,' he said. "'Is she anything like the woman you saw next door?' I mean the poor half-demented creature who happened to come into the room when you were talking with the owner? Why, of course, it is the same girl, Gurdon replied. Then I am sure she is Vera's sister. I'll ask her about it the first time I have an opportunity. Be silent, and get a little lower down the stairs. There is somebody coming down from the top of the house. We can see here without being seen. Assuredly there were sounds emanating from the top of the house. A voice was raised in angry expostulation followed by other voices morose and threatening as far as the listeners could judge two men were dragging a third down the stairs against his will but for that the house was deadly silent the watchers could hear the jingle of a passing cab bell a belated foot passenger whistled as he went along it seemed almost impossible to believe that so close to light and law and order and the well-being of the town a strange tragedy like this should be in progress hidden from the eye of london by mere skill of brick and mortar this strange thing was going on. Venner wondered to himself how many such scenes were taking place in London at the same moment. But he had not much time for his meditation, for the shuffling of feet came closer. There were no more sounds of expostulation now, only the heavy breathing of three people, as if the captive had ceased to struggle and was making but a passive resistance. Then there emerged on the landing the figure of the handsome cripple, with a guardian on either side, his face was no longer distorted with pain. Rather, it was white with an overpowering anger. His eyes shone like points of flame. On his right side, Venner and Gurdon recognized the figure of the man in the list slippers, the man who had been handling the sovereigns in Fenwick's rooms. His comrade was a stranger, though of the same type, and it seemed to Venner that anyone would have been justified in repudiating either of them as an acquaintance. It was perfectly evident that the cripple came against his will, though he was struggling no longer. Probably the condition of his emaciated frame had rendered the task of his captors an easy one. They dragged him, limp and exhausted, into the drawing-room, where Fenwick was seated, and they stood in the doorway awaiting further instructions. "'You needn't stay here,' Fenwick growled. "'If I want you, I can call. You had better go back to your cards again.' The two men disappeared up the stairs, and just for a moment there was silence in the drawing-room. It was safe for Venner and his companion now to creep back to the drawing-room door and take a careful note of what was going on. With the aid of a friendly mirror on the opposite side of the room, it was possible to see and note everything. The cripple had fallen into a chair, where he sat huddled in a heap, his hand to his head, as if some great physical pain racked him. His heavy breathing was the only sound made, except the steady puffing of Fenwick's cigar. A fit of anger gripped Venner for the moment. He would have liked to step in and soundly punish Fenwick for his brutality. Doubtless the poor crippled frame was racked with pain, caused by the violence of his late captors. But under that queer exterior was a fine spirit. 
Gradually the cripple ceased to quiver and palpitate. Gradually he pulled himself up in his chair and faced his captor. His face was still deadly white, but it was hard and set now. There was no sign of fear about him. He leaned forward and stared Fenwick between the eyes. "'Well, you scoundrel,' he said in a clear, cold voice, "'I should like to know the meaning of this. I have heard of and read of some strange outrages in my time, but to kidnap a man and keep him prisoner in his own house is to exceed all the bounds of audacity.' "'You seem to be annoyed,' Fenwick said. "'Perhaps you have not already learned who I am?' "'I know perfectly well who you are,' the cripple responded. "'Your name is Mark Fenwick, and you are one of the greatest scoundrels unhung. At present you are posing as an American millionaire. Fools may believe you, but I know better. The point is, do you happen to know who I am?' "'Yes, I know who you are,' Fenwick said with a sardonic smile. "'You elect to call yourself Mr. Bates, or some such name, and you pretend to be a recluse who gives himself over to literary pursuits. As a matter of fact, you are Charles Le Fenu, and your father was, at one time, the practical owner of the Forefinger Mine.' "'We are getting on,' Venner whispered. "'It may surprise you to hear this, but I have suspected it for some little time. The so-called absent owner of these houses is the man sitting opposite Fenwick there. Now do you begin to see something like daylight before you?' I wouldn't have missed this for the worlds. We certainly have been lucky, Gurdon replied. There was no time for further conversation, for the cripple was speaking again. His voice was still hard and cold, nor did his manner betray the slightest sign of fear. So you have found that out, he said. You know that I am the son of the unfortunate Frenchman, who was murdered by a rascally Dutchman at your instigation. You thought that once having discovered the secret of the mine, you could work it to your own advantage. How well you worked it, your left hand testifies. The jeer went home to Fenwick, his yellow face flushed, and he half rose from his chair with a threatening gesture. Oh, you can strike me, the cripple said. I am practically helpless as far as my lower limbs are concerned, and it would be just the sort of cowardly act that would gratify a dirty little soul like yours. It hurts me to sit here, helpless and useless, knowing that you are the cause of all my misfortunes, knowing that, but for you, I should be as straight and strong as the best of them. And yet you are not safe. You are going to pay the penalty of your crime. Have you had the first of your warnings yet?' Fenwick started in his seat. In the looking-glass the watchers could see how ghastly his face had grown. "'I don't know what you mean,' he muttered. "'Liar!' the cripple cried. "'Paltry liar! Why, you are shaking from head to foot now. Your face is like that of a man who stands in the shadow of the gallows.' "'I repeat, I don't know what you mean,' Fenwick said. "'Oh, yes, you do. When your accomplice Van Fort foully murdered my father, you thought that the two of you could have the mind to yourselves. You thought you would work it alone, as my father did, and send your ill-gotten gains back to England. That is how the murdered man accomplished it. That is how he made his fortune. And you were going to do the same thing, both of you. When you had made all your arrangements, you went down to the coast on certain business.' leaving the rascally Dutchman behind. He was quite alone in the mine. There was no one within miles of that secret spot. And yet he vanished. Van Fort was never heard of again. The message of his fingers was conveyed to his wife, for she was implicated in the murder of my father, and how she suffered you already know. But you are a brave man. I give you all the credit for that. You went back to the mine again, determined not to be deterred by what had happened. What happened to you I need not go into." "'Shall I tell the story, 
or will you be content with a recollection of your sufferings? It is all the same to me. You are a bold man, Fenwick cried. He was trembling with rage that filled him. You are a bold man to defy me like this. Nobody knows that I am here. Nobody knows that you are back in your own house again. I could kill you as you sit there, and not a soul would suffer for the crime. The cripple laughed aloud. He seemed to be amused at something. Really, he sneered. Such cheap talk is wasted upon me. Besides, what would you gain by so unnecessary a crime? And how much better off would you be? You know as well as I do, disguise it as you will, that the long arm has reached for you across five thousand miles of sea, and that, when the time comes, you will be stricken down here in London as surely and inevitably as if you had remained in Mexico under the shadow of the mountains. The dreadful secret is known to a few. In its entirety it is even unknown to me. I asked you just now if you had received the first of your messages, and you denied that you knew what I meant. You actually had the effrontery to deny it to me, sitting opposite to you as I am, and looking straight at the dreadful disfigurement of your left hand. For over three centuries the natives of Mexico worked the forefinger mine, till only two of the tribe who knew its secret remained. Then it was that my father came along. He was a brave man, and an adventurer to his fingertips. Moreover, he was a doctor. His healing art made those rough men his friends, and when their time came, my father was left in possession of the mine. How that mine was guarded, and how the spirit of the place took its vengeance upon intruders, you know too well. Ah, I have touched you now. Fenwick had risen, and was pacing uneasily up and down the room. All the daredevil spirit seemed to have left the man for a moment. He turned a troubled face on the cripple huddled in his chair. He seemed half inclined to temporize, and then, with a short laugh, he resumed his own seat again. "'You seem to be very sure of your ground,' he sneered. "'I am,' the cripple went on. "'What does it matter what becomes of a melancholy wreck like myself? Doctors tell me that in time I may become my old self again, but in my heart I doubt it. And as sure as I sit here, the mere framework of a human being, my injuries are due to you.' I might have had you shot before now, or I might even have done it myself, but I spared you. It would have been a kindness to cut your life short, but I had another use for you than that. And now, gradually, but surely, the net is closing in around you, though you cannot yet see its meshes, and you are powerless to prevent the inevitable end. "'You seem to have mapped it all out,' Fenwick replied. "'You seem to have settled it all to your own satisfaction. But you forget.' that I may have something to say in the matter. When I discovered, as I did quite by accident, that you were in London, I laid my plans for getting you into my hands. It suits me very well, apart from the criminal side of it, to hide myself in your house. But that is not all. I am in a position now to dictate terms, and you have nothing else to do but to listen. I am prepared to spare your life, on one condition. Now kindly follow me carefully. I am listening, the cripple said coldly. If you were not the blind fool you seem to be, you would know that there could be no conditions between us. But go on. Let me hear what you have to say. I am coming to that. I want you to tell me where I can find Felix Zary. Suddenly, without the slightest premonition, the cripple burst into a hearty laugh. He rocked backward and forward in a perfect ecstasy of enjoyment. For the moment, at any rate, he might have been on the very best of terms with his companion. Oh, is that what you are driving at? he said. So you think that if you could get Philip Zary out of the way, you would be absolutely safe? Really, it is marvelous how an otherwise clever man could be so blind to the true facts of the case. My good sir, 
I will give you Zary's address with pleasure. Fenwick was obviously puzzled. Perhaps it was beginning to dawn upon him that he had a man of more than ordinary intellect to grapple with. He looked searchingly at the cripple, who was leaning back with eyes half-closed. "'Hang me, if I can understand you,' he muttered. "'I am in imminent danger of my life, though I should be safe enough if Felix Zary and yourself were out of the way.' "'And you are quite capable of putting us out of the way,' the cripple said gently. "'Is not that so, my friend?' "'Aye, I could, and I would,' Fenwick said in a fierce whisper. "'If you were both dead, I could breathe freely. I could go to bed at night feeling sure that I should wake in the morning. Nothing could trouble me, then, as to that accursed mind. I have done with it. Never again do I plant my foot in Mexico.' "'Fool that you are,' the cripple said in tones of infinite pity. "'So you think that if Zary and myself were out of the way, you might die eventually in your bed, honoured and respected of men? I tell you, never. The vengeance is upon you. It is following you here. It is close at hand now. You have already had your warning. Perhaps, for all I know, to the contrary, you may have had your second warning. That you have had one, your face told me eloquently enough a few moments ago. I am quite sure that a little quiet reflection will show you the absurdity of keeping me a prisoner in my own house. Of course, I know I am entirely in your hands, and that you may keep me here for weeks if you choose. It will be very awkward for me, because I have important business on hand. I know your important business, Fenwick sneered. Everything that goes in your favor will naturally spell disaster to me. As I told you before, it was only an accident that told me where you were. Indeed, so changed are you that I should not have recognized you if I had met you in the street. No, on the whole, you will stay where you are. At this point, Venner clutched Gurdon's arm and dragged him hurriedly across the landing down to the half staircase. So quickly was this done that Gurdon had no time to ask the reason for it all. Someone is coming down the stairs, Venner whispered. Didn't you hear a voice? I believe it is the girl in white again. Surely enough, looking upward, they could see the slim white figure creeping down the stairs. The girl was crooning some little song to herself as she came along. She turned into the drawing-room and called aloud to the cripple in the chair. With an oath on his lips, Fenwick motioned her away. End of chapter 13